It's interesting that often we hear sort of the same thoughts being expressed from the, from the pulpits, sometimes in person, around the people around the congregations. I, I didn't plan this uh, sermon in connection with the sermon at today or yesterday or remarks that Dr. Meredith has made recently. I'd like for you to turn, please, to John, 1 John, rather, chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John, chapter 4 and verse 7. Sometimes there seems to be just a theme. It seems to be something is on people's minds. Uh, maybe it's just coincidence, or maybe it's a theme that's developing here for these holy days. I'd like to read these, word, uh, these scriptures here and point out that the word love here is agape, agape love. Verse 7, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Behold, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is love. Down in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now, when you read God is love in the Bible, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? Is just just a pleasant sentiment? Ah, oh, yes, God is love, a nice little sentimental saying. Is it a substantive saying? Does it have real substantive meaning in God's word? Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 46. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 46. Once again, we're receiving instructions from God on how to live and the reason for it. He tells us. Jesus Christ, rather, is saying this to us. Verse 43, And you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That's a tall order. We don't naturally do that. We love our friends. We don't sort of love or maybe actually hate our enemies. That's the normal, natural thing that someone would do. But God gives us this instruction, and then he gives us the reason for it. Verse 45, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Our Father does good to everybody. He is someone who does good, even on the unjust, even on the wicked, on people who are out there doing wrong things. He causes good on everyone. Love does good for others. It just does good. God does good. So, so should we. That's what we are being taught here. We are supposed to become like our Father in heaven, and he is love. How can we do that? We're supposed to become like our Father in heaven. That's what we just read. But God is love. How can we do that? You know, little boys try to imitate their fathers. It's just as cute as it can be. I, I, you all know it, and the girls imitate their mothers, too. Um, I, 
the, my boys were always real funny about that, and I would see them doing things, and I said, oh, boy, I, I did that too. And I, even to this day, I see myself doing things and uh, saying things that my father said. We naturally imprint on our parents. We're hardwired to do that. God has made us that way. So we uh, do these things. Uh, we uh, try to do this for both good and for bad. We're supposed to become like our father and thereby become his sons, that we may be like our father who is in heaven. The title of this sermon today is, With All Our Hearts, What Does This Mean? What Does This Mean? Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, we will enter the God family, we believe. We know that the Feast of Trumpets pictures that great transformation, among another of a, a number of other things, and we believe that on that date is likely to be the date when we are transformed and changed. And we teach that. Jesus said in John chapter 17, May they be one just as we are one. May they be one just as... Well, how are father and son one? I mean, I've got four kids. We are one, but how? We're one as a family. We are one family. Christ also said, he is the firstborn of many brethren. Many more are coming along, and we are going to have that change on the Feast of Trumpets. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First John, First John chapter 3 and verse um, 2 and 3, he says these things. When he is revealed, we shall be like him. The oneness of God is the oneness of a family which we can enter, and we do it on the Feast of Trumpets. That family is holy and loves as the Father does. Outgoing concern has that quality. That family itself is love. We know that our Father is love. He loves with all his heart, and he does it all the time. How can we aspire to be that way? Do you really aspire to be love, like our Father? How? How can we do such a thing? Today, let's look at one way we can imitate our Father. One way that we can imitate our Father. That is, by loving him with all our hearts. And in doing so, we will be like him. And hopefully, we can also know our Heavenly Father better if we can just understand why he tells us this over and over and over in his word. Now the first point, point number one, turn if you would please to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. In God's law, he talks a lot about what is in our hearts relative to the law. I'm going to go through just a few scriptures on this subject. Let's do a quick little Bible study on a few of these scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day for your good. For your good. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. 
Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So there's a great benefit in this, but he wanted it to just not just be what they were doing or had to do. He wanted them to have it in their hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So what's in your heart has a lot to do with what you obey, how you act. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. To prove you. Do you know what was in their hearts? Why? Why did he humble them? He humbled them that they would know that they should live by every word which he speaks. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll begin in verse 1. One through three, six, ten, and fifteen. Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call to mind among the nations, call them to mind among the nations where your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring back you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord has scattered you. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Verse 10, If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, and keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law. If you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Life and death. And he said earlier on, and when we read early, blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. But, you know, Israel was rarely of a willing heart when it came to obeying God. They needed blessings and cursings to do it, rewards and punishment. Here, if you do this, I'll give you this benefit. Oh, yeah, yeah. But if you don't do it, I'll give you this punishment. Oh, no, no. They needed that because they had no other motivation to do it. They needed rewards and punishments to keep them to do it. They really didn't want to themselves. So having God's law in our hearts isn't something that comes naturally to the descendants 
of the first Adam. And that's who we are. We are the descendants of the first Adam. However, this, the descendants of the first Adam, it says that they, we have enmity in our hearts towards his law. It's sort of a natural thing. This is Satan's world. Satan's world. This is Satan's kingdom fills the world today. The second Adam is coming to destroy it and replace it with his holy mountain, with his kingdom, and with people who have the love of his law in their hearts. Their whole beings are involved in that. Having God's law in the heart is a characteristic of the second Adam type. And that's what we will be transformed into on the Feast of Trumpets, which we look forward to in the future. So we see that this matter of having God's law in our hearts is really important. He repeats it, and I've just been through just a few times here. You know where it is in your Bibles. Do a study on it. Get a concordance. He says it over and over and over. Perhaps with God, repeat something this often is something we should know about and learn about and try to understand what it means. So point number two. Why is God's law so important to him that he would be so focused on it and on us internalizing it. Why is this thing so important? Well, God's law, one big reason, expresses his character. I'd like to read something to you from uh, the new Unger's Bible Dictionary. Uh, this is a sort of a, it is a Protestant document, the Unger's Bible Dictionary, but a lot of very interesting things in it. But amazingly, what I'm going to read is there. It's, this thing on the Ten Commandments is there in Unger's Bible Dictionary. And the guy got it right. I've quoted this in articles and I've uh, mentioned it before in sermons. I'd like to read it to you now today. Ten Commandments. The foundation and source of the moral law is God's character. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is the way the Ten Commandments are introduced. The Hebrew name here used, everlasting, eternal, almighty, intimates that the principles of law have their standing in the character of God. I am, you shall. That is the connection. And that is what makes the moral law so awesome in its unchanging majesty unchangeable majesty. It is law because God is. It cannot be changed without changing the character of Jehovah himself. Right is what it is because God is what he is, and therefore it is as unchangeable as God. God's law springs from his very character, the type of just who he is. That's why he tells us this, because he is right in everything that he does, uh, we use the word righteousness a lot of times, and it's so much that it, it sort of loses its meaning. It means rightness, the quality of rightness. Everything in God's law has the quality of rightness about it. God's law is righteous. That's what it means, has the quality of righteousness. The quality of rightness. Yet we have some people out in the world who don't like God's law so much, they say it's a burden. They say, well, yes, the commandments, you don't have to keep those anymore. You can as a gracious privilege. I've always been amazed at that one. You keep God's law, his commandments, as a gracious privilege, but you don't really have to, perhaps, if you don't want to. 
Well, the first century church simply did not believe that. They kept all ten of the commandments. You know, some people today say that, well, when Christ died, the ten commandments were tossed up in the air, but only nine came down. Well, that's almost the basis of their theology about this. We keep all ten of them because we love God's law. And we love the Sabbath day. First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. First John chapter 5 and verses 1 through 3. Remembering what we just read, now let's read what John had to say about this. Beginning, let's begin in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The love of God is keeping his commandments. Well, we just read why that is. The commandments come out of the very character of God. If we love him, then we want to do what his character is as well. We want to imitate our father if we love him. His commandments are not burdensome. They are desirable and good. They reflect his character. Now, what if a young man says to a young woman, you know, he's wooing this young lady, and he says, I love you, I love you, but I just, I really don't like the way you look or the way you dress, the way your hair does, uh uh-uh, baby, I don't like that at all. The way you talk, uh, your accent, the way you walk, none of that really appeals to me, but I just want you to know I really love you. Mm -mm. I don't think she's going to be convinced, is he? If he doesn't like everything about her, but how can he love her? doesn't like anything about her character, then how can he love her? Maybe not, okay? If the young man says to the woman, I love you, With with no feeling, I don't think she's going to buy it, guys, okay? It has to come from the heart. She has to know it that you really mean what you say. Real love is a part of you. It's in your heart. It's an expression of your being. So that's why one big reason why we keep God's commandments, because we love God. We love God and his commandments as well. Point number three, how we approach God's law. How can we approach God's law? Okay, I've been talking about this in the abstract a little bit, so now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling a little bit. We'll go get practical about this. Turn to Psalms chapter 5 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 7. Verses 4 through 6 here describe the wicked. He is contrasting to God in the psalm what he does and what he chooses to do with what the wicked do and how they choose things. Verse 7, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now, just the first phrase you may have never noticed, but he says, But as for me, as for me, he's saying, I choose something different. The wicked did that, but as for me, I choose differently. His will was something else. What is your will? 
What is your will? I've asked this question uh, before, but let's ask it again. Can you, if someone asked you, what is your will, what does that mean? Can you define the word someone's will? Can you, how would you define that? How would you explain? I'm not talking about, you know, your document, you know, you filed with your attorney or something. That's not it. I mean, the, when you say, oh, it is my will that we do this, it is my will that we do that. How do you define the word will? What is your will? I'll give you a working definition of that for the purpose of the sermon today. Your will is your power to choose. Your will is your power to choose. You say, I want a hamburger instead of a hot dog. So you choose that. It was your power to choose this or that. Or I could wear a green tie today or I could wear a red tie today. I had the power to choose which one I was going to wear. I have a, a, a blue and a red tie on today. It was my will to do that. You see what I'm saying? It's a very simple thing. Your will is your power to choose. Now, we all like being right. Nobody likes being wrong. It takes a big man to admit it when he's wrong. You've heard that because everybody likes to be right. How would you like to know how to be right all the time? 100% of the time. I don't know how. Obey God. <laughs> He's always right. Everything he says has the quality of rightness about it. God is the definition of rightness. God is the definition of what is right. If he says it is right, then that's what is right. But God wants our obedience to be our will to do it. He wants it to be something that we choose. Obedience is an act of will. I mean, his obedience, let's say you're running a little late to services and uh, you speed up to about 85 on the, four, on the 485 coming in, and you look in your rearview mirror and there's a blue light going bing, 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 bing. Now, what is your will for that? Your will is for him to go away and to pull somebody else over. That's what your will is. That's what you really want. That's what you would choose. But he's pulling up right behind you, and it's going bing, bing, bing. And uh, you know that what have you got? You'd like to drive off and just keep going. But you must subordinate your will to keep driving to the will of the police officer who's going to pull you over and uh, give you a ticket. But if you want something, then for something to like that to happen, then you're very glad for it. Obedience is an easy matter, you see. Let's say you wanted to have a ticket that day. So the police says, oh, great, here comes the police officer. I can't wait to pull over and get a ticket. I haven't gotten one in two weeks. <laughs> Not likely, but that's what you would do if it were your will to get tickets, okay? Just... Some from, from the heart examples. Let's say that uh, the father says to his um, teenage son, uh, son, you're not going to like this, but I order you to accept this new sports car which I'm giving you. Now, what's the young man going to say? Oh, no, Dad, do I have to? No, it's his will to have it. That's what he wants. That's something he really wants to do, so he doesn't really have to to obey his father to accept such a wonderful gift. I mentioned before, I think, a, my favorite example of this was when my daughters were growing up. Their rooms would sometimes be a mess when they were little kids, and Marsha would have to go in and say, 
Now clean up your rooms, girl. And they would say, oh, do I have to? They wouldn't want to. But they would obey. They would obey their mother. They subordinated their will to hers. And now that they're grown up, they don't have to be told. They have their own house and their own apartment, and uh, they keep their homes very, very clean and um, very, very nice in that way. If our wills are converted, then doing God's will, obeying his definition of right and wrong, when we do that, we're just doing our own thing when we do that. We're going to get to do our own things, brethren, forever in his kingdom to the extent that we are converted. And one way to look at conversion is having our thing become God's thing. He has to change us and make us so that's the way. What a wonderful state to live. What a great way to live forever. But it's God's spirit that enables us to do it. God's spirit is a transforming power a transforming spirit. He puts it in us, and that spirit grows and changes, and changes our very wills, our very choices in life changes when he does that. We can see why the church warns against personal willfulness so much. How many times have you heard a sermon about willfulness. Don't be a willful person. And sometimes when uh, maybe you've been having some real problems and you might counsel with a minister, he says, no, you should not be willful about these things. Personal willfulness. That's asserting your own will over what God says or maybe something about the ministry or about the work. Turn to Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Here's old Lucifer. Lucifer. He says in verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? But you have said in your heart, I will extend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the th- mount of the congregation, I, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And you shall be brought down to Sheol, the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. That's what's going to happen to him. And that's the end of such personal willfulness. When you have that feeling, I will, I will, I will do this, I will do that. Think about it. Think about it. Where's it coming from? Where's it coming from? Watch for it. We all experience it. We all experience it. But we have to subordinate our will to God's. And watch out for that feeling. Watch out for that I will, I will. We have to do God's will and subordinate our will to his, and then he transforms our will so that it's like his. When we want to keep God's law, say honoring our parents or keeping the Sabbath holy, then our characters are like God's, or they are to the extent that we want to. I mean, What's your, what's your will about the Sabbath? What do you choose about the Sabbath day? Turn over to Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. 
You're in Isaiah there. Just turn over a few pages to 58. God commands us in the Sabbath commandment to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's the commandment. We do it by ceasing our labors on the third day. And we, he tells us why he did that in the various in the commandment itself. Verse 13 and 14. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, doing your own ways, nor find, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride upon the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the, the spirit of the Sabbath is in its holiness and sanctity. What's your will about this day? About come, Well, to come to church. That was my will. I like coming to church. I look forward to the Sabbath beginning on Friday night. How many times have you kind of heard people say, oh, I'm looking forward to the Sabbath so much. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for it to happen. Everybody else thinks it's a burden. What do you think? You can't wait, can you? I walk around the office sometimes in the, on the Friday afternoon and say, is it Sabbath yet? Is it Sabbath yet? You've heard me do that from time to time. Just kidding, of course. But yeah, we look forward to the Sabbath. But what are you looking forward to? Well, rest, yes. But do you delight in the holiness of it, in the sanctity of the Sabbath, its set-apartness? Is that what you delight in? That's what we're supposed to delight in. We do things that make the Sabbath a delight, but it's the holiness and sanctity of it that we delight in doing. That's where the spirit of it is, and we magnify that. Then we come to services after a good night's sleep, hopefully, and we rejoice in our fellowship. Everything we do today is different from during the week. We don't do any of the same things. Is that a delight to you? I bet it is. I bet it is. But it is not a delight to the world. They hate it. They'll do anything to avoid keeping this time holy. But it is a sign between God and his people that we love the Sabbath. We love its sanctity. We want to make it special in every way. Is the holiness of the Sabbath a delight to you? It is to me, and I bet it is to every single person in this congregation, that distinguishes you, a line of demarcation, an identifier from the people of the world. They will do anything to avoid it. Point four, worshiping God. Why do it? You're here today to worship God. Why does he have us do this? Acts chapter 17, verses 27 through 29. Acts chapter 17, verses 27 through 29. Sometimes it's a good idea just to contemplate who God is. We were talking about who God is in terms of his character, his completely righteous, wonderful, just, good character. Well, let's think a little bit more about who God is. Verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. Wow. We exist in him. The podium exists in them. The Bible and the books and everything we have here. I personally exist in him. You do too. We live and move and have our being in him. As some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Isaiah 45, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 11 and 12. Just some things about this great God that makes us want to worship him. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth and created man in it. I, my hand, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. God commands even the hosts of heaven. Isaiah 48, 12 through 13. Isaiah 48, 12 and 13. It's over a few pages. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. He has power over all of the heavens, over all of the galaxies, all of the stars, all of the black holes, all of the wonders of the heavens that we are only just now observing or beginning to think about. He knows about. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Infinitely higher. God is an infinite intelligence. You know, a lot of times when we talk about the greatness of God, we talk about the vastness of space and everything that's out there. But, you know, try thinking about it this way. How about the tiny things? All of the insects, all of the blades of grass. He says every a sparrow doesn't fall that he doesn't know about. He's numbered the hairs on your head. Probably knows the exact number of atoms in the universe. Even the tiny things he knows because it is all has its being in him. That is how great God is. You know what? We need to worship God. It's not as though he needs us to worship him. It's because we need to worship him. Why? Worshiping God is an act of telling the truth. He is just that great. You know, what happened when some of the prophets or some men got an inkling of the majesty of God? What happened to them? They fell flat on their faces. The vanity of man. We live and move and have our being in him, but if we had any idea who he is, we would simply fall down and be unable to move or speak. We see that in the Bible when this happens to people, when they have this. We need to worship God because when we do that, 
We are telling the truth. We are worshiping someone who is far greater than us in every way. So worshiping God is important. It's a statement of truth. And we are to do this in spirit and in truth. Now, one of the things we do is when we come before God is we sing. We sing before him. You know, music is, is involved in our worship, and I, I loved the, the music that we heard today from the kids. But music is special. I'm sitting here talking, and I can describe things to you, and if I use my words correctly, it will cause you to have certain thoughts about things. And that's good. But what does music do? With no words at all, it communicates a feeling, a feeling. Music has power. It has special power that just prose and speaking doesn't have. Recently, I was talking with uh, Mr. Marcus McCullough, and he was uh, reading something to me. He's an important thing about the worshipfulness of music. You know, out in the, the world's churches, what do we have these days? We have the praise music and things like that. The music has become entertainment. Entertainment. Many of the songs and everything that you hear in religious music these days, if you just changed a few of the words, it could be a good pop song. It sounds just like it. You know, the, all, the, all the different the, the musical accoutrements are the same. And if you go around to many of the churches where the, in, the, um, in the area tomorrow, you'll see drums on the stage and bands and everything. And basically the music is going to be entertainment. But here, our music is worshipful. We use it to enhance our worship of God. That's a difference. It's something we should think about. We worship God by coming together and listening. We worship God in, uh, in our music. We worship God in our attitude. And when we're doing this, we're just telling the truth. We're realizing that he is worthy of our worship, far greater than anything that we can imagine. His intelligence is, is higher than ours, and the heavens are above the earth, infinitely higher. Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. I can imagine the scene that the Apostle John must have been um, beholding when he saw these things. Verse 13, <clears throat> every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Now that's a nice start. That's a good beginning. And then the four living creatures said, amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever, worship of God. You know, if God is merely an abstraction to us, how can we really tell the truth about this? And Dr. Meredith often says, God must be real to you. He must be real to you. And he should be. A spiritual reality, even more real than this auditorium, and more real than the earth, because we have our being in him. God is holy. God is complete in rightness, justice, mercy, goodness. In my case, happily, in patience as well. 
And our Father wants him, wants us to know him. So he reveals us to him. One of the ways he does it is through his law. It shows us his character, what is right and wrong in his view. John chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. John chapter 4, verses 22 through 20. We'll begin in 23 here. We'll just do 23 and 24. John chapter 4. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Why? Why? He is a God of truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Knowing what you're doing and why, it comes from the heart. We need to do it. We want to do it. But God has us do it for us. From the heart, part of our being, is what we really want when we worship God. When we do that, our attitude in church is different. The way we sing our hymns is different. The way we relate to each other is different. Worshiping God. From the heart, in spirit, and in truth. Psalm 122, verse 1. Psalm 122, verse 1. We won't read all of these. But, you know, there's somebody who really understood that. And that was David. King David. Uh, lately I've been reading the Psalms. I need to do that from time to time. And just go through them and read them. And seeing this amazing attitude. It, it comes across in David's poetry, inspired poetry. Just read, go back and just read through the Psalms sometime when you have a chance to do that. It's a good Bible study. Let's look at what he said here. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Glad, oh, we're going into the house of the Lord. We're going to worship God. I'm glad. I'm happy to be able to do it. That's David's spirit. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. I love this one. In your King James Version, it says, make a joyful noise. I've known a lot of people who always joke about their singing. They say, well, I just go and make a joyful noise. That's, that's not exactly what it means. The word here is a shout. We don't shout here in services, but apparently sometimes in the, the temple in David's time, they did. Make a joyful shout unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. You did that today. But from the heart. But sing from the heart. Listening to and reading. Our, our hymns are, are mostly from the Psalms themselves. I, I really wonder what the music would have been like in David's day. I enjoy the music that's associated with ours. But sing them from the heart when we do that. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. Wow. David was something. He had the right idea, didn't he? 
about worshiping God. Acts 13, 22 and 23. I'll just read 22. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. So is there any wonder that David was called a man after God's own heart? What an attitude. What an attitude. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, He's talking about um, Saul. God had removed Saul. He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, let's look at this carefully here. When we say today, oh, this is a person after my own heart. That means they're soliciting our affection usually. You know, um, you know, someone we really like and they're coming after our affection a lot. This is a, a phrase in English. Uh, it, it bears some looking into the translation of it a bit. After is in the Greek is kata, which is more often translated, if you just look on an Englishman's concordance, according to. When you, you look through your Bible, your New Testament, you see according to this, according to that, it means that. Uh, um, that's, that's the word that it is. It means having a heart according to God's. Having a heart like God's. That's the, the sense of what's being said here. It's a very similar meaning in the Old Testament. It's quoted in Acts, is taken from 1 Samuel 13. Verse 14, it says in the New King James, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. But the word translated here, after, is libab, which means in many places, in his heart. If you go through the Old Testament and say in his heart, in his heart, in many places, this is the word that it's mean. In his heart, near his heart, according to his heart. The scripture isn't saying that David needed to solicit God's affection. It is saying that David wanted a heart, a will, like God's. Why? So he could do all God's will. A man after my own heart. A man according to my own heart. Who will do all my will? His will was like God's. God recognized that. David deeply wanted a heart, a will like God's, and that qualified him uniquely to be over all of Israel. Point five. What is in our hearts towards God is also expressed in our priorities, in our priorities. John 3.16, that's a memory scripture. We don't have to um, look that one up. It says, for God so loved the world And it doesn't say that he just had a heart full of affection. It says that he did something. Agape in the Bible is usually expressed in terms of what you do. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for a purpose. He did something to express it. 1 John 5, 3, memory scripture once again. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We do something. If you love God, you keep his commandments because you like what they are. You like what they mean. You like what they express. 1 Corinthians 15, 
beginning in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For all as in Adam die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those that are Christ at his coming. God gave his first and best, his only son, for us, his firstfruits were for us. Exodus 23:19. Exodus 23:19. This is the principle of first fruits. What are your priorities? What is most important to you? When you have the power to choose, what do you choose to do first? What is your will about your priorities? The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. First of the first fruit. We give our best. More um, things he said in Leviticus 1.10, we won't turn that, but he said it would be without blemish. It can't be some, something that is your worst thing, or a lamb or something that was about to die anyway. Well, I think I'll go, it's going to die anyway. I think I'll give it to the temple, I'll give it to the Lord. No, we give of him our best because he did that for us. That's his character. That's the way he is. That's his nature. Well, we should give God our first fruits also. It should be our choice. He tells us to do it. He tells us, so we obey. But it needs to be our choice to give God our first fruits. What's what's your choice? When you have the power to choose, what is your will about, oh, say, your time? How do you spend your time where God is concerned? Are you, are you helping people? Are you doing this in a, in a helpful way to others? In your prayer, how do you spend your time? In you, your morning prayer, you fall out of bed, thump, and then scramble up and say a few words, God, please bless my day. Now, where's my coffee? Um, is that, you give God your best time in the morning. How about your evening prayer? You wait until you're three quarters of the way asleep, and then pray to God and is, is that the best that you have for him? Are you giving him your best in that regard? How about your tithes? Sometimes people say, oh, I don't have enough money to tithe. You don't know why? It's because it's not the first check you wrote. You had plenty of money to give your tithe in the account. When you got to the last check, that wasn't enough. If you give God your first fruits, as you're supposed to do, as he commands you to do, you always have enough money for your tithe. How about your time for your study? Oh, I never have enough time to study. No way. Oh, boy, busy, busy, busy. Because oh, you did other things first. You had enough time to do all the things that you did. But if you were giving God the first fruits of your time, ah, sure, you would have enough time to study every day. You have to feed on God's word. You have to drink in his spirit. Feed on it. It's your spiritual food. But it's got to be a priority for you. A priority, something that you want, is how you prioritize things that tell God your will in these matters. What is first in your life? What do you truly desire? 
You know, what's hospitality, you know, to the other brethren? Are you hospitable to the people? You make that a priority, service. You're, good. You're giving your first fruits in your service to others. The truth and the work, what is your priority there? Is a personal offense more important than the truth and the work for you? Is a twiggy doctrinal matter more important than the truth and the work? God forbid. God forbid. First fruits, brethren. What do you choose? What's in your heart where the truth and the work are concerned? What's in your heart where the brethren are concerned? What's in your heart where your communication with God is concerned? What is your, in your heart where you want to learn what he has for us to know? How do, then how do you prioritize it? It has to be what is in your heart. What do you truly desire? Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Boy, we have so many things. Someone asks, how was your week? Oh, it was busy, busy. What do I love to say around the office? Never a dull moment in God's work, let me tell you. Always something going on. We're busy, busy, busy all the time. Never seems to be enough time. So many things to think about and worry about. So many things that demand our attention and pull us in one direction or the other. Verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his statue? So why worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Go out and look at one. When's the last time you just looked at a flower and said, what is the mind of the being that designed this? Look at the architecture of a winter tree with the leaves off. What is the mind the elegant mind that designed these things. Just look at a lily and say, somebody made that and caused it, us to be able to see its, its beauty. O oh, ye of little faith, that's us sometimes. Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. But for, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek you first, first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about his own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. First priority, God's kingdom, his word, his truth, his work. Put it first. It's something we need to want to do. Priorities, brethren, are from the heart. Point number six. I'd like to just have a brief discussion about a misleading statement that I've heard over the years. 
uh, used to be a minister down in Florida, and he used to I just used to say this all the time, preach about this all the time. It always made me really uncomfortable until I figured out what it was. You know, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I can spot a Protestant doctrine several blocks away when it's coming in my direction. And that's what I was seeing here. This is a statement, it's all about God. Have you ever heard that? It's all about God. Let me explain a couple of reasons why this is misleading. If you Google the phrase, in, in quotes, it's all about God, you know what you'll get? Did it just recently. Over two million hits. Two million hits. Almost all of them are coming from Protestant websites that are in the text of sermons and things like that. That are picking up on this. They're also saying, going to heaven to be with God, and these are people who deny the gospel of the kingdom of God. Second, nowhere in the Bible does God say, it's all about me. Where does he say that? Nowhere. What does God say in his word? Rather, he teaches that it's all about us. God is a God of giving, not of getting. It's all about us. Some examples here. John 14, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> John chapter 14 and verses 1 and 2. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many offices, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for me. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. I prepare a place for you, a kingdom, an office, a place for you. You're being converted, you're being worked with. God is leading us and transforming us so that we can hold positions, these offices that he's doing for us. Luke 12 and verse 32. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Guess what? He wants to. He has the power to choose. It is his will to give you the kingdom. He wants to do it. He's been doing all of this for you, going back billions of years. He formed the earth. He restored it 6,000 years ago. And he's been doing it for the moment that's coming up not very long in the future. Feast of Trumpets, sometime in not too distant future. All of these things are coming up. And the angels are awaiting. <laughs> Nobody knows the exact time and the exact hour. But it's coming. All of that creation, all of that work, awaiting the birth of the sons of God. All of labor, all the creation is going into labor, so to speak, awaiting this birth of the sons of God. Mr. Armstrong taught that God's way is the way of give. And we understand that God's love is expressed in what he gives, not in what he gets the church's teaching about this is the whole creation is for us. It's all about us. And God is doing it out of love 
from his heart because he is love and giving, giving always towards us. Point number seven. Point number seven. If we are to be loved like God, we must obey the first and greatest commandment. That's why God gave it. That's why he calls it the greatest commandment. Let's read it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Interesting that we heard that in the sermonette. The greatest commandment, Jesus said. He was asked, which one, which one is first here? Which one is the, the biggest and the greatest? When it said the first, it means primary, the first in terms of the chiefest. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's look at it again. You shall love the Lord Yahweh, your God, Elohim, with all your heart, meaning all your courage and all your emotion, with all your soul, that's your nephesh, all of your physical being, with all your strength. Strength means your force and your vehemence. Everything that you are to love God with all that we are. Verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Shall be in your heart. In your heart means it is your will. It is in your will to do this. It is something that you want to do. I remember when I was a child, the first time my mother read this to me, it resonated. It resonates to me today. And read it again here in the New Testament. Mark 12, 30 and 31. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. How can you read this and not have it resonate through your being, through your heart? <clears throat> he tells us, <clears throat> And you shall love the Lord your God, He's been asked, which is the greatest, the primary commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's cardia in Greek, your feelings and your emotions, with all your soul, suke, the spirit in man, your life force, with all your mind, dianonia, all your, means your thoughts, your mental faculties, with all your strength, that's iscus, your forcefulness. This is the first commandment. First, in terms of the chiefest of the commandments. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Because they sum up all of the Ten Commandments. Love of God, love of the fellow man. Anyone who has these commandments in their heart, well, they're love, aren't they? Love is first and foremost and primary and expressed in their heart. Why none greater? If we do these things, if we love God with all our whole being, then we are obeying this commandment. We are like God. We are love like him. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 Beginning in verse 15, Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. 
that's That's not the correct one. Look in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in training in the admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart in Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service to the Lord and not to men. Something that we do from the heart to God. God's Spirit is a transforming power. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's Spirit is a transforming power. And what we do changes us. If you pray and ask God for repentance, you know what he'll give you? Give you choices. Gives you choices. But he helps us through them. He helps us through these things. Every time we make one of these choices in life, every time we obey God, it changes us a little bit. It changes us somewhat. So that we are then becoming the, the type of person, and have the character of God in us. And that's what he's doing. He's working with us, transforming us inwardly, and making our wills to be like his, so that we can do these things from the heart. In the introduction, I read First John 4 and verse 16. I said, we have known and believed the love that God has for us, God is love. If we love God with all our wills and with all our beings, then we will be like him, love with our whole being. Pray for this kind of love, brethren. Pray for this kind of conversion. Pray for God's spirit to work in us, to lead us through each of these trials in our lives, to make us, cause us to make the right choices every time. I pray when I come up, God, when you give me these choices, if I'm not making the right one, pick me up and push me through the right door. Don't let me make the wrong choices. 
Help us to do these things. And in each time we obey him and do what we should, he transforms us and makes us more like him. Our wills become like his. Like his. We need to realize the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets. Entering the God family. Thinking about these things. What that's going to mean when you do that. When you do that, you're going to be of the kind of the second Adam. Like Christ, he is the firstborn of many. And you're going to be one of that kind, living forever. But in order to do that, in order to rejoice and be happy and have this wonderful life, this wonderful existence forever that he has for us, our wills have to become like his. We have to choose like he does. So he works with us. He transforms us. He changes us. The Bible says that God is love. How can we comprehend that? We're supposed to become like Christ, become like Christ, Christ-like, and also like our Father in heaven. And how do we do that? How do we become love? Like the Father in Christ, God instructs us to obey him from the heart. And he says it over and over and over in his word. He does it so that his law and his will is ours and our nature also. He writes his law on our hearts. If we obey God from the heart and serve from the heart to do good, then it is part of us, part of our very natures. And God's character and love is a feature of our characters as well. God commands us to rejoice at his feasts. When we go to the feast this year, let's rejoice from the heart. Oh, boy, what a terrible thing to have to do. That's one of those things. I don't have to obey to do that. That's not, that's not an obedience item for me. When I go to the feast this year, I'm going to rejoice from the heart because it's something I want to do. He makes it possible for us if we saved our tithe so that we can do it and rejoice and be glad and be with the brethren and obey him. Think on these things, brethren. The Feast of Trumpets, coming up here in a few days, pictures, among other things, the resurrection and translation of the saints of God into the God family. Those that are in that family will have the family characteristics of the God family. So when we obey God, let's love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And in doing so, become love like God. Let's do it with all our hearts.